0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Father, you have before us your word here this morning. It's a book. It's words on a page. But we ask you now to put it before us in a way that lives, that runs. So that ink and words and paper has life in it and it, it comes alive and runs into us and changes us. We take this passage this morning and draw us to you and open our eyes more to who you are and to what you have done on our behalf and then cause to rise up in us and then to flow out of us joyful praise of your glorious grace. Make that real this morning, please. Spirit, own this time. Direct our attention to your word. Speak, please. Exalt Christ. Build your church his name we pray. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 10 in the account of Jesus' sending out of the 72 and as we have seen leading up to this point a significant turn has happened in Jesus's life and ministry he is now headed towards Jerusalem and final confrontation there. He's headed towards the cross. But on the way there he's going to head to a number of different towns and villages and so he sends out ahead of him messengers to prepare the way and he calls them laborers in the harvest indicating the role that they will play of gathering people to jesus it is harvest time and to summarize very briefly much of what we have seen he sends us out into this time of harvest this time in which there is an ingathering gathering of people into the kingdom a great in gathering he sends us out in what should be hopeful prayerful expectation there is a harvest and what should include warning because there is also opposition in the harvest. And last week we talked about some of the opposition and some of what the consequences of opposition looks like in very sobering verses we looked at verses 12 to 16 and saw Jesus talk about the end. The consequences of dreadful judgment coming to those who reject the message of the gospel who turn away from the offer of peace, who turn away from the offer of good news and resist God. Sobering words. And he tells them to us, we who would be laborers, so that we understand something, that we have a a different perspective of what's going on and so that we understand the the importance of the mission that he has called us into. We understand something about opposition so that we see. It's meant to ground us and, and point us Towards this harvest work that's his, that's in his hands, that he takes care of, and he will accomplish. So there's this sober note that ends, and then he sends them out. And in today's passage, we pick up with the return. The disciples come back, and we will immediately note that the tone is 180 different. He sent them out. The last words were, were these sober notes about judgment, and they come back. And now the, the repeated theme is, is jubilation and rejoicing because they have seen ministry success, the topic of, of success, the topic of salvation. That's what we're, we're seeing in, in this passage today. And it all leads to great joy. So we're going to follow it. We're going to follow the passage in, in a, a hunt for joy. Something that Jesus, Luke, wants us to consider joy. And something that, frankly, we all want to consider because we want joy. Every person does. It's a key characteristic of what the the Christian is. A rejoicer. Always. Let me say it again. Rejoice. So it says Paul. So we're looking for joy here. We're going to see it in this passage in a couple of different ways. But first, let me read it. Verses 17 through 22 this is Luke 10 verses 17 through 22 The 72 returned with joy saying Lord even the demons are subject to us in your name And he said to them I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven Behold I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We'll stop there. make two observations from this passage, and they kind of fit with the two different paragraphs, but here's the first one shorter Christ-centered kingdom growth is indeed cause for rejoicing Christ-centered kingdom growth is indeed cause for rejoicing The word's joy and rejoicing are all over this passage as I read it you probably heard it repeatedly and so we're we're looking at joy here and there are a couple of things that that Generate joy, one of which Jesus means to address our attention towards or to point us towards. And we're going to get to that one. That's the main one. But in going there, we need to be sure that we don't completely miss something that, while less important, is not unimportant. It's less important, but not unimportant in our pursuit of joy. It might seem unimportant, especially if we only look at verse 20 and see it as if Jesus is for some reason forbidding don't rejoice in this and commanding do rejoice in this if you're drawing a hard line but it's not what's going on there he's actually just making a comparison between two good things one of which is better this is great but by comparison it's nothing don't focus on that focus on this that's what he's saying he's he's got an order to things and we're going to get to the main one but first we need to talk about the lesser one which is indeed cause it is in fact cause for rejoicing Verse 17 they returned with joy these messengers he had sent them out he said as lambs among wolves and the final note struck by Jesus in verses 12 to 16 was sobering and perhaps created a little bit of trepidation they go out and then they come back and what they find well probably some rejection but not all rejection they also find they say Lord guess what Lord even the demons when they say even we gotta realize that people are assumed people yes and even the demons submit to us are subject to us in your name People, of course, but your name is powerful. And, and even the demonic forces, we, we saw it, Lord, demons, they hear us, and in hearing us, they hear you, they hear your name, they sense your power, and they bow before us, and they run away. And, and it actually happened. Demons were cast out of people, people were delivered, people turned to you, people were gathered into the kingdom, the harvest came in, for real, it happened. Lord, awesome. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. They are excited about this and it's true it happened and they are very clear about how it happened there's nothing wrong here they are not saying we did something awesome they're subject to us in your name they are very clear they themselves are very clear and they they want him to know they understand he is the one But he, through them, accomplished some amazing things. They have the proper focus. They know that he builds the kingdom. And Jesus then says in agreement, Yes, indeed, you are correct. We just notched a big win. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Uses a phrase here that alludes back to a quote from Isaiah. Chapter 14 there in Isaiah There's an illusion forward to the eventual downfall of Satan and Jesus reaches back to grab that and says that back here right now I see it happening right now I send you out I watch what happens as you go out carrying this message carrying my name and I saw Satan fall it was awesome this is a celebration right now it's the harvest time it's the time continuing on in verse 19 in which I have given you authority to tread over all the power of the enemy, a spirit world enemy, as well as over fallen, hostile natural world. When he says scorpions and serpents, those are two animals that very frequently in the Bible are associated with nature at war with people. You can think of the serpent, Satan, and in the book of Revelation, scorpions attack people. Those are two very hostile animals, and Jesus says, I gave you authority, I have in this time now I've given you authority to tread on hostile nature and to tread on hostile spiritual enemies and it happened my forces triumphantly walked all over them it was awesome it's the time of evil's downfall and Jesus sees it here in this ministry carried out by his people Now is the time. Satan has fallen. His kingdom is undone. Nothing can hurt you. Which, of course, does not mean that snakes can't bite us and that Satan can't attack us. See, in its context, it's over. We win. You're untouchable. That's what he means. And this should cause us joy. it causes God joy the downfall of Satan the 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 pulling of the strain that begins to undo all of the the evil kingdom the start of inevitable renewal if you think of of Narnia when things start to thaw the freeze goes it causes God delight. It should cause us delight, this, this triumph. He sees it. it. Demonic forces undone, and even them, people also delivered. People, people returned to God all by the name of Jesus. The, the grace of God in Christ is running through these, these, miss, these missionaries, these messengers. And it is profoundly good and profoundly powerful, and it is cause for rejoicing. And, and they, are, they come back and enjoy not only what happened, but they got to be a part of it. He did this in us. They're subject to us. Can you imagine? They got to stand there and and watch and be a part of it. The authority of God, they stand in God's stead as the kingdom of Satan is laid low. This should cause rejoicing. Do you realize this? Do you think like this? About now. stop and look around, I mean, look around, there are, I don't know, let's say 150 Christians in this room, which, on the one hand, is not very many people, and all of us here, we've got a whole host of problems, we've got a whole host of, of weaknesses and sorrows and difficulties, we are sheep among wolves, for sure on the other hand 150 people in this church believe that dead man came to life again and that that dead man coming to life again proved that when that dead man was executed by the state that it wasn't just about crime that it was in the plan of God the way that God sent to remove sin off of us that we couldn't do it ourselves we had no hope and that God acted to deliver us from sin and then raised this man from the dead again to prove that he's God in the flesh Savior of people who trust him 150 people believe that here and how many Bible believing churches are there in Holiday or Cottonwood Heights several and Sandy and Draper several more and Murray and West Valley and Salt Lake? And what about Park City and Boise and Denver and Chicago and London and Istanbul and Riyadh and Shanghai and refugee camps in the middle of nowhere, Ethiopia? Everywhere. Stop and think about that. Everywhere, in every corner of the globe, now, for a couple thousand years now, all across the globe, Jesus has been raiding the strong man's house, the term that Jesus uses to allude to Satan. A strong man bound up Jesus raids his house he breaks in whenever he feels like it and takes away people whenever and whoever and however he wants carries them off into the kingdom of God and says I'm gonna come back tomorrow and do it again try to stop me and Satan tied up throws a hissy fit over it sometimes very violently and that's serious sometimes very violently, but he cannot do a thing about it. It has been going on for thousands of years. He's raiding the strong man's house and building up a kingdom that is vast. A little bitty piece of it right here. It is in every tongue, tribe, and nation on earth where people believe that a dead man came to life. Now, the religions of the world make perfect sense to people. Do this, and God accepts you. And this ridiculous religion says... He'll never accept you for what you do. I'm going to raise a dead man to life, take him off of a cross, and that's how I'll save you. And across the globe for thousands of years, people actually believe that. The kingdom. He is raiding the strong man's house successfully everywhere and as he pleases, doing it through us by his spirit in the power of his name. We need to realize this and rejoice in it. This is more than, I know who wins in the end. This is about, do you know who's winning right now? Right now. Jesus is winning right now. He owns this. He owns it all and does as he pleases and accomplishes all of his perfect will. Rejoice in that. The successful growth of the kingdom of God is indeed cause for rejoicing. And it is successfully growing. It is spreading and it is real. So we should rejoice in that and at the same time be careful because, man, we love power and we love victory and triumph, and we are very easily seduced into thinking that that's all that's going on, and that's all that should be. And as soon as we move there and camp there, that we are a people of victory and triumph, then we have no way to understand suffering. He actually is triumphing through suffering, not instead of through suffering. Satan is still real, He's not completely vanquished. Obviously we know that, which means this is still a time we live under the cross. It is still a time in which we sorrow, and while sorrowing, always rejoice. So we need need to be clear about that and be careful that we don't find ourselves lusting for glory and lusting for power and unable and unwilling to walk with Him through the darkness and to walk with Him through suffering. He, He means for us to do that now in this time, still. But we do that rejoicing, knowing I can see the scoreboard. I don't just know how it ends up at the end. I can see the scoreboard right now. He's winning, and he wins. We should view all suffering. I I heard this story. Maybe you heard this story somewhere. I cannot remember where I heard it. it. It's such a great story, so personal, that I should refer to who said it, but I don't know who said it. I can't remember. Some guy talking about the one time in his high school basketball career when he actually dunked. Sorry, familiar to anybody? He's a basketball player, he said, one time in my high school career, I had a breakaway and I dunked the ball. It was a moment of glory. I rose up and slammed it home, and landed, only to hear, we were away, only to hear the home crowd chant, check the scoreboard. and realized, oh yeah, we're still down by 20 and there's a minute to go. (laughs) That's how we got to view all suffering now. We should look at it, realistically say, nice shot. Check the scoreboard. We're winning right now. And we'll win at the end. Christ reigns. He's the king. We are his people. He dwells within us. We go in the power and authority of the king. We need to remember that and be clear about it and also be clear that that is second. It is indeed cause for rejoicing, but it is not the primary cause for rejoicing in this passage. Jesus wants to direct our attention elsewhere. Verse 20. Actually, don't rejoice in that rejoice that your names are written in heaven And that's what takes us to the second the main observation here it is the deepest joy is rooted in the triune God's work to save you in particular so first God's kingdom is advancing the kingdom is growing. Ministry success. But the deepest joy is rooted in the triune God's work to save you in particular. Ministry success, growth, yes. Verse 20, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's where Jesus wants to turn there and our attention. Your personal eternal heavenly reality you Christian in the past already have been recorded in the citizenship roles of the kingdom of heaven so he's picking up there with the names written in heaven he talks about citizenship role you've been written in which means you have been delivered out of one kingdom and brought into the kingdom of the Son He loves. You've been delivered out of what we saw last week is so sobering. And not about you. Your names written in heaven means that, as I said this last week, that you can read those verses and you you can hear them discussed and and expanded on but in reality you'll never know what it was really about because you'll never go there and you'll never live there you're a citizen of heaven that's the truth stated in verse 20 and then in the following paragraph that truth is further illumined. it's expanded on by Jesus more is revealed to us. So we could kind of say that verse 20 says what is, you have been saved, and that's what you should rejoice in. And then 21 22 expands on that and says, and here's what's worth rejoicing about in that. So as we look at the, the second paragraph and watch Jesus look at this salvation, so we're going we're to watch him look at the salvation that he just mentioned, and we're gonna see what he's rejoicing in and that's gonna be what we should rejoice in and we're gonna find something slightly unusual we are accustomed and there's nothing wrong with this we are accustomed to saying or to seeing or to hearing reading salvation and then when it's expanded on when it's when it's opened up what we have delivered to us are the benefits of salvation kinda of like I was just talking about brought out of the kingdom of darkness delivered from condemnation, delivered into peace, into rest, into communion with God, into glory. So we have salvation, and what's opened up is usually the benefits, and that's not what happens here. Nothing wrong with that. It's very common in the Bible, just not here. Here what Jesus opens up is not the benefits, but the how it came about. Where the salvation came from. So we're gonna look at him looking at and rejoicing in where this salvation came from this Trinitarian salvation that is the salvation worked by the triune God the only God who is verse 21 in that same hour at that same time right right then Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit Jesus celebrated in exuberant delight. Rejoice. It's a slightly different word than the word used elsewhere, a common word for rejoicing. This one emphasizes jubilant celebration. He celebrated. He's rejoicing in or by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was driving his celebration, just as the Holy Spirit must do in us. It's important to note because as soon as we note that, we realize something. Uh-oh, joy comes from the ministry of the Holy Spirit within a person. Okay. It's a fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It's fruit that the Spirit produces in a person, and the Spirit produces fruit in a person while we, in humble submission to Him, believe open our hearts if you will like like this in front of him in submission are willingly obedient are turned towards him spirit of God own me direct me fill me so it is no use seeking deep profound joy and resisting God those two things can't both be so Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade, used to say, There's no such thing as a disobedient, happy Christian. Those two things disobedient, by which I mean resisting, holding God off, unyielding, unwilling, Spirit of God moved me to deep joy. Can't be. So be filled with the Spirit. That is, come to to God and say, here, Lord, have me. Run through me, own me, direct me, fill me. Orient my heart, orient my values, orient my obedience after you. And his ministry will flourish, one piece of which is joy will flourish in you. Be filled with the Spirit like Jesus is. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, Here's what he's thinking about. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. I give you thanks that... Here's what spirit-filled, rejoicing Jesus is focused on. I give you thanks that you have hidden these things, the good news concerning the kingdom, these things... The good news concerning the kingdom, the king, salvation, judgment, the offer of peace, all that Jesus has been talking about, all that the messengers just went out and proclaimed, we could for ease of conversation, let's just say the gospel. I give you thanks that you have hidden the gospel from the wise and understanding and revealed it to little children. The Father has hidden it from some and revealed it to others. Jesus says so, and Jesus gives thanks over it, rejoicing, filled with the Holy Spirit. Hmm. He's hidden it from those that you would think would get it. The wise and understanding. If people understand anything, it would be the wise people who understand stuff. The understanding ones understand and little children don't get anything. The nobodies of the world, the, the small, the, the sheltered. You've hidden it from some learned people and revealed to the nobodies and the nothings. And it is, it is hidden in this sense. It is, it is hidden right in plain sight. We, we hear that and we sometimes think, man, there are people actually looking for it and God said, nope, nope. Nope, I'm hiding it. That's not what's going on. The Bible says clearly that there is no one who seeks God. It says it over and over again. But we could look at these, at these chapters in Luke and say, he's hiding this right in plain sight. The truth is talking to them. The truth tells them the truth while eating in their dining rooms, standing in their, their town squares, It's right there. And he's going to go up and teach in their temple and be rejected by the national leadership and be crucified in public at the capital city. And his empty tomb, known to everybody, will be right there for anybody to see. It's going to be hidden right there in the open. He hides it, in in this sense, right in the open. And we need to be clear that it's not that God is, is like... Keeping people from something that they desperately want. It's right there. So be clear about that. And we also need to realize that it's not that wise people don't see and children do see. Nobody sees. He has to reveal it to them. They don't get it either. Nobody sees. None of us do. All are blind. Such are the blinding effects of sin. All are blind. No one understands, as Jesus says. No one understands who I am. And no one understands who the Father is. The Old Testament and the New both. no one seeks God. We seek things we call God, but we don't seek God. And what Jesus is saying that God the Father will do, has done is not act to overcome that blindness in some, and he will act to overcome that blindness in in, in others. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You are the ruler. You are in charge. He is the ruler. He is in charge. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden it from some and have chosen to reveal it to others. You will continue to hide it in plain sight for some, but in glorious grace, he will act to reveal the truth to others. God will choose to do this. Grace. He will choose to do it because it is Pleases him to do so yes father for such was your gracious will such was your good pleasure This is what's being emphasized We're talking about you in particular And what we see here so far is that you in particular are saved? Why? Because the Father chose to reveal these things to you in particular. In His sovereign wisdom to others, He did not. To you in particular, He did. Are there still others to whom He will reveal? Absolutely. The harvest is still being brought in. We don't know who that is, but we know right now if you see, it's because he revealed it to you, so says Jesus. And he did so because he wanted to. That's why he did it. This is what separates you from others, not your abilities or inclinations. That's the entire point. It has nothing whatsoever to do with us. None of us could say, well, of course I would. Look at me. I'm wise. I'm understanding. No. You weren't wise enough and understanding enough. You weren't inclined to seek him. If you see, it's because you were a little child and didn't see anything, and he chose to reveal it. That's what Jesus said. That's what Paul said, too, very, very clearly in First Corinthians 1. If you want to write that down, it's even more clear at the end of First Corinthians 1. Second time, we won't go there. But it's there in Paul. It's here in Jesus, rejoicing in the Spirit, so delightfully thankful that the Father has structured salvation such that the high and mighty of the world are shamed and the lowly ones are lifted up and delivered all to the praise of His glorious grace because of nothing whatsoever in us. He reveals to those He chooses. That's the Father's work in salvation. And then next the Son gets involved. Jesus turns from praying In praise, you notice that verse is directed as a prayer to the Father. I thank you, Father. He's praying in praise of the Father for the Father's role in salvation. And then he turns to talk about, to explain something about his own role in salvation. Now, God the Son is equal to God the Father in being. Could include God the Spirit in this as well. God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. Are all equal in being, all equally divine, all equally worthy of worship. The three of them each distinct persons in the one triune God. That's what the Bible teaches. That's who they are in their being. But then when we turn and look at, at what they do, what 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 this triune God does in relation to the creation and salvation, we see a division of labor. One easy way to think about it is to think about an architect, a general contractor, and then an actual carpenter or or electrician. Father, son, spirit. The father's distinct role is one of plan. The son's distinct role is one of looking over and, and getting the whole job done that is accomplished by the actual working of the Spirit who takes tool in hand and makes connections. What we're seeing here is, if you will, the architect handing over the plan to the general contractor and saying, I give to you authority to make it happen. Go. Here in verse 22, it says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. In other words, I have authority to Tear down the kingdom of Satan, and I have authority to establish the kingdom of God, and I have authority to seek out and to gather in the harvest, the sheep that He has chosen to reveal this truth to. Those for whom He has sent me. In the fullness of time, we have seen the Father sent the Son, and now in the fullness of time, He is taking him to the cross, and He will eventually one day send him back. All there's a plan of The Father sending the Son. Jesus has come here to get a people. He's come here on a mission from God to get a people. He is the fullness of God dwelling in bodily form, and nobody understands that. Nobody sees it. That's what he means. No one knows the Father, and no one knows the Son. It is unknown. So what does he do? Well, he teaches and he models. He says, he explains in words and he, and he shows this is what the love of God looks like. This is what the forgiveness of God looks like. And then he goes to the cross and this is what the love and the forgiveness and the justice of God looks like and nobody gets it. So what more does he do? End of the verse. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The Son now likewise chooses today in time and space here he chooses to reveal God to some they're not a different group from the ones the father chose to reveal it's the same group God the son and God the father are working together the difference is one of timing the father chose in the past and now here in time and space the son chooses as he comes across these people as paths cross as people are born and live and grow up in time and in space the son chooses to reveal himself and in himself to reveal the father we see an example of this in acts 16:14 it's in a lot of places in the Bible, Acts 16:14, the story of Lydia. Lydia is a worshipper of God who doesn't know God. Paul arrives in town and preaches. In verse 14, we read, "The Lord, that's Jesus, not there personally, of course. Paul's there personally. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul the Lord opened her heart. Jesus, his spirit in Paul, crosses paths with Lydia in time and space and chooses at that time and that place to reveal the truth to her, to open her heart so that she hears what Paul's saying and she sees it and she believes. One example in Scripture, 150 of them in this room. This is how it is that you believe the nonsense that a dead man rose from the grave. Because that makes no sense to anybody except that God, by His Spirit, revealed it to you, and you saw. You were blind, and now you see. You were dead, and you came to life, and that by the work of the Holy Spirit applying, making the connections. I've heard these words before, and now I see them, and the power comes on. At work there, because the Lord is seeking you out, Jesus seeking you out. Why is that? Because the Father long ago said to this one, I will reveal the truth. This is an amazing, an amazing reality. What we back into here from this passage is is an explanation of, of how the Trinity works in the doctrine of election. You see the word revealing, choosing to reveal. The Spirit opens the eyes of those whom the Son has chosen to reveal, and He's chosen to reveal those that the Father has sent Him to reveal to And apart from that, we would remain blind. This is an amazing gospel. It's an amazing gospel in in at least two distinct ways. Setting aside all that it delivers us from and to, it delivers us from wrath into glory, but it is amazing in a couple different ways. It first of all, exalts the Father. It exalts the Father far above, this is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 1 when he addresses this, and this is why Jesus rejoices in it and gives thanks for it, because it exalts the Father far above any human effort or any human worth or value or or ability or merit. It says this salvation is of God. Glorious worship of the God of grace is the end of this. And it is amazing in another way because what it says is that you, in particular, have been on the mind of God for eternity past. So we could ask, when exactly was your name written in heaven? In a very real way, when you believed and came to life, your name was written there. It was enacted, and that's, that's true and that's real. But in another way, God the Father has known you in love in Christ forever. This is the point of Ephesians 1. Look at Ephesians 1. And I realize we're late here, but... I will end here in a moment. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds like Jesus praying in Luke. Blessed be you, Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. he has known you from before the foundation of the world that's why you see he sent christ to get you that's why you see christ poured out his spirit through ordinary people of the church or through the bible or through something you heard on the radio or some meeting you attended the Spirit moved powerfully to open your eyes. That's why you see. It is a unified work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it is all of grace on you, not because of anything we have done. It is the story of the most profound love affair ever. And it is the root of why we write so many novels and so many movies and so many songs about love pursuing because something in us resonates with that. You are a pursued, beloved one. From eternity past, he has had his eye on you. And in time and in space, he rescued you. Are there others? Yes. Gloriously so. And in the flow of this Luke chapter 10, we're talking about the harvest. That's what drove Paul again and again and again to city after city. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. They too must hear about Christ, but he knows they're out there. There is a harvest to be brought in. We have no idea who it is. Paul didn't have any idea who it is. But God the Father does, and God the Son does, and God the Spirit does, and he will win them to himself. This is a glorious truth, and I understand people don't believe it. I understand Christians don't believe it. I hope that you know two things, if you're a member of this church and you're not sure where you stand on that, if you're a regular attender of this church, I hope you know two things. I am not going to ostracize you for not agreeing with me on this. And I hope you also realize there was a whole lot on Jesus' lips there that supports this. Consider it. It is the message of God's love to his people. It is the message of God's love to his people that graciously enabled you to see, graciously enabled you to trust, has graciously delivered you from darkness into light and into glory forever. This is a good and mighty God. To the praise of his glorious grace, we rejoice in this salvation. Let me pray. Father, would you open our eyes to understand you, to understand who you are and how you are. And Lord, if there are some here who know themselves not to be Christians, but in some way understand some things, would you draw them on? Maybe that is your beginning to reveal to them. Draw them on. As we sang earlier, the blessed hope remains that you will save anyone who calls on your name. Give them eyes to see who you are and and a desire to call on your name. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your power that overcomes. Thank you for the sure knowledge that you are victorious even now. Hold your people near to you, Lord. Build us up. Encourage us cause us to rest in the glorious grace of the gospel and grow us up in joy. Thank you, Lord. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801 943 0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah. 84121